So with that said, let's read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 27. It's a large chunk of text. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed face my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the unfaithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silvers become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and they're the companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They don't bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause doesn't come before them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, "Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. 
Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, a children's church is dismissed, as is our Crossroads class. And as our kids are making our way, we'll jump right into our study. Isaiah has been called the greatest of the prophets. It's a great book. It's 66 chapters. It's enormous. It's a book that's been marked by literary critics as being a a particular poetic brilliance. And it is dumbfounding in its range of of its range of vision. Uh, Who was Isaiah? Isaiah, we learn in chapter 1, verse 1, was the son of Amoz. We don't know who he is. According to Jewish tradition, he was the brother of Uzziah, making him royalty, but we don't know if that's true. We know when he was. He was in the 8th century because he lists the kings uh, who reigned during his ministry. His name means Yahweh saves, which is incredibly appropriate given the message of the book, which is not only can Yahweh save corrupt Israel, He will save. And not only will He save Israel, through her salvation, He will remarkably save all nations. He was married with children. We only know his wife by the title, the prophetess, whether that's because she was a prophet herself, like Deborah, or because she was married to a prophet, we're not sure. We know of at least two sons who had bizarre symbolic names. Uh, One was uh, Shir Jeshub, which means a remnant shall return. And the other one, my favorite, any takers on this one for our pregnant mothers? Maher Shalal Hashbaz which means quickly to spoils, plunder speedily. How's that for a name? (laughs) He was an historian. Isaiah wrote and recorded history. History mattered to the prophet. In fact, uh, you'll see on the screen two examples of his historical records from 2 Chronicles. He records the death of Uzziah which marks the beginning of his public ministry. He recorded it in a book we don't have anymore. And then later in chapter 32, he records uh, at the tail end of his ministry the death of Hezekiah. And he apparently, not just the death, but all of his life, his good deeds were recorded in the vision of Isaiah in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel, which we also do not have. According to the opening verse here, Isaiah was active from the end of Uzziah's reign to the the reign of Hezekiah. So the whole time he's ministering, he's also recording history. In fact, in the Jewish sort of structure of their Bibles, the prophets, as they're called, include the histories. History is prophetic because it's interpreted. It requires a prophetic interpretation of what is the meaning of history. History is not a meaningless, uh, just uh, barrage of events. It is, it is directed and governed by a sovereign God and has meaning. And the prophets interpret its meaning. 
Interestingly, speaking of history, in February of 2018, an archaeologist named Ilat Mazar uh, and her team discovered uh, a clay inscription that has the name Isaiah Navi on it, which the last letters cut off, unfortunately. It could either be Isaiah Navi, a name, or Isaiah Navi, Isaiah the prophet, which would be a remarkable sort of secular uh, bit of evidence for the existence. Even more remarkable is it was found uh, 10 feet away from another inscription, another clay piece that said, belonging to King Hezekiah of Judah, uh, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. We don't know, though, whether or not it's Isaiah or another one. The major events of Isaiah's uh, timeline are important. Uh, in 734, toward, uh, by, it, within his lifetime, an anti-Assyrian alliance was formed between northern Israel and Syria. Now, at this time, the kingdom of Israel was split in half. Under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the nation of Israel was cut into a northern Israel in the, in the south, Judah. And much like in the U.S., the north and the south didn't always get along. And so there was quite a divide there. And at that time, uh, northern Israel had formed an alliance with Syria, their neighbor, to counter the rising Assyrian empire and were pressuring Judah to join the alliance upon threat of attack. But Isaiah, Isaiah predicted in 732, the city of Damascus, the capital of Syria, fell to Assyria. And then in 722, Ephraim, the capital of northern Israel, fell to the Assyrian Empire, as predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Then in 701, another very significant event in his lifetime, the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib marched against the city of Jerusalem, marching right up to its gates, threatening to destroy the city. Hezekiah prayed, and God answered by striking dead 185,000 of his troops. Sennacherib retreated and died shortly thereafter, never attacked again. This is also recorded in the annals of Assyrian history, that uh, Sennacherib's annals records his siege of Jerusalem. Remarkably, he does not note that he took the city, because he didn't. He was not just an historian, he was a prophet, as we've already noted, from the events he predicted. His contemporaries were Amos, Hosea, and Micah. Uh, he was a preacher as such. He was a preacher to Judah in particular, in the south. He was primarily a southern prophet. He proclaimed the word of God, as we read here in these passages. This is the word, hear, O heavens, O earth, the word of God. Thus says the Lord, from the mouth of God, we saw. The Lord God has declared this repeated language of absolute authority. Isaiah presumed to speak for the living God and spoke authoritatively. He, approached, he preached most likely to the crowds in the temple courts, kind of more like Twitter messages than a sermon. He, he, people had short attention spans as they walked to and fro. But he also preached and had the hearing of kings. He preached to King Ahaz, to King Hezekiah, or two kings specifically mentioned. He spoke of the fall of Syria to uh, Ahaz, the fall of 
Damascus, the fall of northern Israel and the fall of Ephraim. He spoke of the fall of many neighboring nations uh, with the, against the Syrian empire. He spoke of the retreat of Sennacherib against Jerusalem, most devastating to his audience, and this was beyond his lifetime by a hundred years. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and their subsequent exile. Even more remarkable, he predicted the return of the people under a foreign ruler that he even named Cyrus. We know him in history as Cyrus II of Medo-Persia. But he predicted the collapse of Babylon by the Medes and then the restoration of God's people in 538, well after his death. Less precisely, but no less breathtaking in scope, he predicted the end of the world as we know it, the coming of the Messiah, both as a suffering servant who would endure brutal sufferings on behalf of his people, and a reigning king who would usher in everlasting peace, righteousness, and a kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. The resurrection of all the dead, as well as the salvation of all nations. All of this he predicted. He was a visionary. Chapter 2, verse 1 puts it paradoxically, as the prophets often do. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah. It's a word he saw. <laughs> and indeed, he did have visions. Isaiah 6, when we get to it, we'll see he has a vision of God himself in the temple. He even saw, perhaps in that very moment, the Christ. John 12, 41 says, Isaiah said this because... Isaiah saw him, Christ, and spoke of his glory. Isaiah was a visionary like no other. In fact, the early church was up absolutely enamored with Isaiah, as was their New Testaments. It's quoted 60-some times. Jerome in the fourth century said Isaiah was more of an evangelist than a prophet because he described all the mysteries of the church of Christ so vividly you would think he was not prophesying about the future but composing a history of past events. Isaiah was a writer and an editor as well as a preacher. In fact, the book of Isaiah is really a collage of prophecies. It is a, it's a collection of prophecies. We read about this collection forming in chapter 8. Listen to what Isaiah writes. He says this to his disciples. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me as signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums for us, go to the necromancers who chirp, chirp, chirp and mutter, should not a people instead inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. In other words, Isaiah understood that he was compiling prophecies into a book that would be holy scripture and points future generations to go to it. Read this. If they will not go to the Word of God, they have no light in them. 
But there's a method to his madness. As random as Isaiah can seem, and it can seem random, there's a structure to this book. Famously, most talk break up Isaiah into three parts, and some call it first Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, second Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, and third Isaiah, 56 through 66. Some even posit three different authors because they, they cover such a broad range of history. Section one is the Assyrian threat. Section two, the Babylonian threat. Section three, the Persian Empire and beyond spanning hundreds of years. Uh, on the screen, you'll see a more uh, common breakdown of the text, uh, kind of categorized under the Assyrian and Babylonian categories of uh, the, the empires of the time. Uh, Isaiah 1 through 12 deals with judgment, but also hope for Judah as well as northern Israel. 13 through 27 really addresses the nations. And then 28 through 39 deals with the rise and fall of Jerusalem in particular. And then 40 through 55 begins with this incredible message of hope and comfort for Judah and the judgment of Babylon. And then 55 through 66 focuses not just on Judah, but incredible promises for all nations. So that's kind of a common breakdown. We could actually break it down even further. If you see 28 through 39, actually 28 through 35 is one section. And then in 36 through 39, it's no longer poetic prophesying. It becomes historical prose. 36 through 39 is a recounting. It's a retelling of 2 Kings 18 and 19 about the Sennacherib invasion of Jerusalem that I referenced earlier. And it's really the pivot of the book, the turning point of when the threat goes from Assyria to now it becomes the threat of Babylon. Because the 38 through 39 are uh, the prophecy that because of Hezekiah's faltering in faith in the nation's continued rebellion, Babylon was going to come destroy the city in a series of incursions that would run from uh, 597 to 586, and then ultimately wipe Jerusalem off the map. And then you could further break down 40 through 51 and 51 through 55 into two sections as well. So there would be sort of seven chunks of Isaiah. Interestingly, each section ends with with God's restored people praising him on their way or already in Zion. So there's a very definite structure to the prophet. And what's happening here and how it's structured is he's giving us reason to trust him, right? There's a systematic establishing of his authority. He's giving an impressive portfolio of his fulfilled past predictions, both within his lifetime and beyond his lifetime, to an audience that far outlived him. He's writing to an audience in exile under Babylon and to an audience who's since come out of exile, both an exilic people of God and a post-exilic. And he's saying, look at the prophecies that, are, that were all fulfilled regarding the Assyrian regime. Look at all the prophets that were filled regarding Babylon. Do you trust me now? Will you believe in me and what I have to say? 
And more specifically, what he's addressing isn't just trust my, my message of a yet future hope and a yet future judgment. But he's specifically addressing the doubts that an exiled people would have no doubt been struggling with. For, namely, is God really sovereign? Doesn't the, our destruction at the hands of Babylon demonstrate that the Babylonian gods are superior to our God? And Isaiah points back and says, no, I predicted this. Assyria was my rod, he calls it, my axe. And when the axe boasts above the one who wields it, I will judge my axe too. And they're filled with prophecies against Babylon and how God will judge Babylon, his instrument of justice, who will itself be judged. No, God says, these are all under my sovereign command. We saw that in our passage in verses 7 through 9. He already starts off the book with a terrifying picture of the desolation of Jerusalem. It starts off on that. You're going to, I'm bringing the desolation. I'm bringing the judgment to my own people. And then the second question he's addressing is, can God really restore or save us? We are so broken. We're not just broken because we're in exile and we don't exist anymore as a nation. We're just a scattered people. Or once they're back, they're feeble and poor and they have nothing but burnt rubble to work with. But their, their own souls are broken. Their souls are burned rubble. And like, how can we be restored? Are you able to restore us and the answer is yes, and I'm doing it not despite judgment, but through judgment. Look at verses 24 through 27 again. Therefore, the Lord declares right from the get-go, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Who are these? His own people who rebelled against him, especially the leaders. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lie. I mean, look at verse 22. Your silver's become dross. I'm going to undo that. I'm going to undo the corruption that's in your hearts. And I will remove your alloy. I will make you pure. And I will restore your judges. Compared to verse 23, your princes are rebels. Your compa they're the companions of thieves. They love bribes. They don't care for the fatherless or the widow. But he says here, I'm going to restore them. You're going to have good leaders, <laughs> counselors who are truly wise. And the city that has become faithless, verse 21, will become the city that is faithful. And it's not just that he's going to restore Israel for Israel's sake. He's doing it for the sake of the nations. Most remarkable in this structure, as it keeps circling back, is that it culminates time and time again with, and though by this the nations will know. The nations will know. The nations will see. Who's ever heard of such a thing? A whole people exiled. Their whole city and land decimated. Who in the history of the world has ever heard of that people being restored? No one, because it's never happened before. Not only does it happen for Judah, but Isaiah predicted it. 
He not only predicted the return from Babylon, he predicted that the Medes would be the ones who would destroy Babylon, and that a, Me- a Median Persh, a Persian prince by the name of Cyrus would be the one who would restore them, so that the nations might know. It's in that great text where he mentions Cyrus in 45, that God then turns to the nations and says, turn to me, all you nations, and be saved. This is the point of Isaiah. It's not just God saving his own people, it's God saving all people. There's tremendous beauty in this message. First, the message is that, as I've called the sermon title, A Tale of Two Cities, the faithless city will become the faithful city. Constantly throughout the whole book, it starts in chapter one and it doesn't let up until the end of Isaiah 66. You have two cities constantly portrayed. You have Jerusalem as she is in her corruption and her rebellion. And you have Jerusalem as she will be. Beautiful, restored, holy, pure. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Right from the beginning, Isaiah pulls no punches and shows what could only be seen as ridiculous. I imagine even by the prophet himself who knew his city was corrupt, who said, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And yet here's what God gave him to say. Verse two, it shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. She'll be lifted above all the hills and the nations will flow to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Jerusalem will become a beacon that all the nations run to, a city on a hill. It seems unimaginable. There's no way this could happen. And yet, that is the miracle. It's the language of not just a restored city, but a restored creation. Our sin, Isaiah constantly uses this imagery, makes a beautiful world a desert. But he's going to cause rivers, overflowing rivers, to run in the wilderness. He's going to cause a desert to explode in full bloom. You guys seen the blooms in California these last couple of weeks? That's, it's going to just explode in color. A dry, weary desert. He's going to turn the wastelands of our sin and destruction back again into paradise. That's what he does. It seems unimaginable. But Isaiah says, do you trust me now? It's going to happen. Everything else I said happened, happened. Do you trust me now? And not just the city of Jerusalem, the proud city of man. Isaiah talks about the lofty city, the pride and arrogance that doesn't just mark Israel, it marks all the nations. And he's going to lop off the lofty city. And in its place will be, instead of the proud city of man, the city of God. And a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. As we just read, the nations will flow to it. The root of Jesse will be the signal, chapter 11. Assyrians and Egyptians, together with Jacob, will become the people of God in their own right, Isaiah 19. A banquet feast for all nations will be set on the hill of the mountain of the Lord, and death will be removed for them forever, Isaiah 25. 
The mysterious servant of the Lord won't just restore Jacob, he will be a light to all the nations. 49. Many foreigners will join themselves to the Lord in that day and become his people. Isaiah 56. God will send a remnant to the farthest corners of the earth so all nations, even the ones no one could ever imagine existed, will see the glory of the Lord. Thus, Isaiah 11 will be fulfilled. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of me. What binds the city in all of her corruption to the unimaginably good city in all of her beauty and purity? What could possibly connect these two contradictions? And the answer is the fire of judgment. One of the themes that runs throughout the whole book of Isaiah is the picture of judgment as a fire, as a cleansing flame. The, per, the, 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 the hot coal that cleansed Isaiah's own lips would cleanse the whole nation. A hot, burning fire that would wash away the dross, that would cleanse uh, the, the filth with, uh, for the bloodstains of Jerusalem. Isaiah 4.4 4 says, The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. It isn't salvation from judgment. It's salvation through judgment. God will fully restore his wayward people. This is Isaiah's gospel. And he will do that by turning the faithless city into a miraculously faithful city. And that's hard for us to believe about our own lives. To know, if we're at all in touch with ourselves, we know how broken we are. We know how desperate we are for grace and kindness and mercy. How much we need forgiveness. We know how broken we are. And we really don't. We've only scratched the surface. Can you imagine being conformed to the image of God in Christ? That seems impossibly distant from us, doesn't it? But Isaiah said it's surely going to happen. I love what Kierkegaard said. He said, God creates out of, out of nothing. Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. That's way harder to do than create matter out of nothing. <laughs> he, he's not working from the zero point. He's working from the negative, right? And he's transforming us into something beautiful. That's something he's doing. It's not our work. It's his work. Do you believe that? Do you believe the faithless city will be made faithful? Not only will God restore all peoples and nations, or not only will God restore us, he'll restore all peoples and nations through our restoration. This is the significance of the servant of the Lord language in Isaiah uh, chapters 42 through 53. The servant of the Lord is first Israel. He says, I called you to make known my glory to the nations, but you failed. Instead of spreading my fame, you spread, it, you spread shame not glory. God says, who is blind but my servant? Who is deaf like Jacob? And yet another servant arises. A servant who says through him, 
Justice will be established. The coastlands will trust in his instruction. One who God says, I formed you to restore Jacob, but that's not enough. Not only will you restore Jacob, you will be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. And yes, the servant of Yahweh will be judged for her sin and corruption. And strangely, so will the faithful servant. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. This faithful servant of the Lord will be crushed for the iniquities of others through his fiery ordeal his people will be saved. Through his judgment, we will be restored. My servant will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God will restore all nations in the whole world through the salvation and restoration of his people, through their judgment. Most importantly, through the judgment of the servant of the Lord on their behalf. Listen to what Peter writes. Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, our vision statement as a church is we want to be a growing church family that's continually transformed by the gospel on a mission to bring all peoples home to the kingdom of God. That's a really important part of that vision statement is we ourselves are being continually transformed. Because we can have every great strategy for multiplying disciples, small groups, church plants, but if you and I aren't being actively conformed to the image of Jesus, if we're not being restored, all that work will be in vain. We will not be planting churches for God's glory, perhaps for our own, but not for God, and it won't have any lasting impact. You and I need to be continually transformed. He died to forgive us all of our sins and to transform us to those who put away sin and pursue righteousness, to those who come to the overseer and shepherd of our souls. By his wounds, we are healed all the way, not just forgiven, restored. How are we restored? Through judgment. Look what Peter goes on to say in his letter. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. I wonder if he was thinking of Isaiah. When it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. That you may be glad when his glory is revealed. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? Currently, you and I are not only blessed by God and fully forgiven because the faithful servant of the Lord was crushed for us, but you and I are also in a process of judgment. The dross is getting burned away. Whatever it is you're facing right now, you're not being punished for your sins. Someone was already punished for your sins. But you are being refined, purified. And whatever you're facing, 
frustrations, a devastating diagnosis, broken relationships that are heartbreaking. God is actively at work in that moment, in those very things, to transform us, to mold us, to burn away the dross. If we lean into Him in our pain and our grief, if we look to Him to give us rest in our exhaustion, to give us comfort in our pain, Listen, he is faithful. And the good work he's begun in you, he will finish. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you are a God who restores broken things. You are not just half-heartedly committed. You are passionately committed to restoring broken things. And you're passionately committed to restoring us. Lord, bear us up under your rod that we might not only endure, but Lord, thrive, that our desert may become full bloom of paradise.